This is KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Tuesday, November 1st of 2022. Dia de los Muertos. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear about a spin on trick-or-treating that brought pollinator-friendly seed balls to doorsteps on Boulder's University Hill. A new Marshall Fire Recovery Center has opened its doors in Louisville. We'll visit the facility and hear what it has to offer. This Week in Water reports on new research showing the climate would be better served if we stopped raking leaves. Finally, we go to our comment line to hear what's on the minds of listeners. At the bottom of the hour, we'll have an update from the BBC News headlines. Then it's How on Earth. Today's science show will explore the successes and unmet challenges of the Milestone Clean Water Act, 50 years after its passage. At 9 a.m. comes another archival recording of British philosopher Alan Watts. Then at 9.30, James Wise will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. All that's still ahead, but first it's time for headlines with KGNU's Luis Licon. A Boulder police officer has been cleared of wrongdoing after a shootout with two men on University Hill in October, according to Boulder District Attorney. The Daily Camera reports that the district attorney's office made the announcement to clear Eric Stevens in a letter released on Monday. The investigation did not determine whether Stevens or another suspect, Gabriel Sharma, shot Psyche Lucas, the other suspect involved in the shooting. According to a letter, Stevens and another officer confronted two suspects while investigating a nuisance call on University Hill at 1.25 a.m. Investigators say Stevens saw Lucas firing a weapon and shot back. While the officers were taking Lucas into custody, police believe Sharma fired four shots in their direction, after which Lucas told police he had been shot in the arm. A Boulder-based medical device company will receive a $1 million investment for research into a rare disease that causes the breakdown of the trachea. Lazaro Medical LLC will get the funding from Northwell Health, a New York State health company. This investment will help Lazaro to develop the treatment for the degenerative disease that causes the cartilage in the trachea to break down and block the airway. Lazaro plans to submit the minimally invasive procedure to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Rob Israel, co-founder and CDO of Lazaro Medical, told to the Daily Camera, We're thrilled to welcome this strategic investment from Northwell, a world-class leader driving innovation in patient outcomes in healthcare. A student at a Denver charter school was ticketed for bringing a gun to school Monday. The Denver Post reports that the gun was confiscated after another student who saw the weapon told a school employee who alerted police using the safety-tell reporting system. No one was hurt. The student, who has not been identified, was not arrested, but was ticketed for unlawful possession of a weapon. Exposed person for the Strive Prep Rice Charter School said that the school also encourages students to report anything unsafe. The incident remains under investigation by the Denver Police Department and Denver Public School Security. Infrastructure concerns at Lake Powell, Glen Canyon Dam are causing Colorado River managers to look at releasing less water from Lake Powell. KGNU Steve Miller has more. Colorado River managers worry that another considerably dry year combined with a 7 million acre foot release could drop the Lake Powell Reservoir below the point at which the Glen Canyon Dam can no longer generate hydropower. 
The Colorado Sun reports that the current operating rules do not allow for the Bureau to release less than 7 million acre-feet out of the dam each year. The managers are seeking the ability to release less water from Lake Powell next year as they work to revise the operating guidelines to protect the Colorado River system and stabilize rapidly declining reservoir storage elevations. Changing operations at Lake Powell and Lake Mead means the Bureau must prepare a supplemental environmental impact statement, which they intend to do by Friday. Currently, Lake Powell is less than 25% full after two dry decades and three particularly dry years in a row. The water level is low enough that another significantly dry year, combined with the 7 million acre-foot release, could lead to the Utah Reservoir falling below a critical elevation, threatening the dam's infrastructure and its ability to generate hydropower. For KGNU, I'm Steve Miller. Environmentalists and climate activists dressed in zombie costumes marched in Denver Saturday to protest fossil fuel financing. Activists marched from Union Station to chase Bank, Wells Fargo, and the Federal Reserve, protesting the financial fueling of the fossil fuel industry of 60-plus of the biggest banks in the world. The group wore zombie outfits representing the connection between the fossil fuel investment bankers and the climate crisis. U.S. banks are the number one fossil fuel funders. So far, banks have contributed $4.6 trillion to the industry. Giselle Hersfeld, the Funding Climate Disaster Campaign Coordinator for 350 Colorado, said in a press release, In spite of this, Wall Street banks have continued to pump hundreds of billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry under the guidance of the U.S. Federal Reserve. This is why we continue to call on the Federal Reserve and the Wall Street banks to stop funding the climate crisis and start funding a Green New Deal. Residents in Keystone, Colorado have filed papers to make this uncorporated mountain resort to the state's newest town. They filed a petition in the state court in October and say it had more than enough signatures. A special election next year could decide the issue. Supporters say becoming a town would allow them to shape their future, improve public safety, and provide bus stops for school kids. As a town, they would also have the power to limit hazardous oil tanker trucks that pass through the area. A tanker truck crashed and exploded, causing two fatalities in the 1990s. Ken Riley, a retired Air Force colonel and one of the members coordinating the campaign, said to the Denver Post, It is important that the community have an identity. We've grown by 40% over the past five years in full-time population. It's time to recognize that we are indeed a community, a family-friendly resort community. For today's weather, we're going to see a high of 67 and a low of 38 in Boulder, with a current temperature of 40 degrees. In Denver, we're going to see a high of 70 and a low of 35, with a current temperature of 36 degrees. And in Fort Collins, we're going to see a high of 66 and a low of 32, with a current temperature of 33 degrees. For KGNU, I am Luis Licorn. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. If you live in a neighborhood with kids, trick-or-treaters may have come to your door last night. 
But if you live on Boulder's University Hill, you may have encountered a different visitor on your doorstep the evening before Halloween. College-aged Trick or Cedars. KGNU's Jack Armstrong caught up with the group and spoke with Natalie Woodland, Conservation Associate at the Environment Colorado Research and Policy Center. So here we've got a group of students from CU Boulder, from the Bee Boulder chapter, working to save the bees, a farm club, and backcountry squatters, all clubs on campus. And we're going door to door doing reverse tricker seeding to raise awareness about the bees and deliver bee-friendly seed balls. Now what is tricker seeding? So trick-or-seeding is this fun reverse trick-or-treating thing where instead of getting candy, we're going to be passing out pollinator-friendly seed balls to people so they can be planting bee-friendly habitats in their own neighborhood. Now what do you mean by pollinator-friendly? Yeah, so our seed balls are combined of a native wildflower mixture, soil, and a little bit of flour to help them stick together. And now is actually one of the best times of the year to plant wildflower seeds. Why is that? Why is the best time to plant right now? I'm not an expert in it, but basically the way it works is kind of the moisture from like frost and rain uh, allows them to germinate and then they'll be beautiful and ready to go in the spring. Why balls? And I saw you had it like in a certain material. Is it because it's uh, like compostable almost or it goes into the soil? Yeah, so seed balls, the way they work really well is that you can just kind of lob them and they'll break apart and then they're their own self-contained garden by having the soil there. Um, Some of them are wrapped up in uh, backyard safe compostable tissue paper just to help them preserve their structural integrity. Is there any problem with uh, pests trying to get at these balls or anything like that? Not that I'm aware of, um, but of course we've always got pesky squirrels in the neighborhood, so we'll work with nature in any way we can. (laughs) Now, is there any sort of plans to do something like this or just uh, any more plans for uh, Be Boulder um, happening soon besides just this one? Yeah, so on November 9th, there's going to be this great event where students are going to come together uh, and do some phone banking to the governor. Essentially, we want to get in as many calls as possible to raise awareness to save the bees on a statewide level by banning some of the most toxic bee-killing pesticides such as neonics. What can kids do around here to uh, sort of join this organization or just help you guys out in any way? Yeah, so CU Boulder students are always welcome to come join us. We've got a great group me they can join in different public events that happen, which they're more than welcome to show up to. Other steps that people can take at home is signing uh, Environment Colorado's online petition to limit pesticide use and plant their own bee-friendly seed balls. I was going to say, how can they plant a seed ball if you're not coming around to their house specifically? Yeah, of course. So making bee-friendly seed balls at home is super easy. You just want to use two parts soil to one part flour with some wildflower seed mix mixed in there. Roll them into a little ball and leave them to dry for a day or two. Okay, that's uh, that's all-purpose flour? (laughs) Yeah, all-purpose flour. You got it. Run-of-the-mill will work. (laughs) All right, you got me confused there. I didn't know if it was like actual flowers or not. I'm sorry. That's very fair. I can see where your confusion stems from. Okay, sweet. Well, thank you so much for speaking with your name one more time. Yeah, I'm Natalie Woodland, and I'm working here with Be Boulder. Thank you so much, Natalie. No problem. Thank you. Resources to help people in the ongoing recovery from the Marshall Fire and Windstorm have been centralized in a brand new location. The Marshall Fire Recovery Center in Louisville launched with a ribbon-cutting ceremony on Saturday. KGNU's John Kellen was there. Hi folks, can you hear me? Thank you so much for being here. 
Ben Edelstein is co-chair of Marshall Restoring Our Community, MROC for short, and he was speaking at the opening of the Marshall Fire Recovery Center in Louisville. MROC was established early this year in the wake of the devastating wildfire that swept through parts of Boulder County in late 2021. It's a coalition of organizations working to help everyone affected. So the primary function of the center is to give a space for the families um, uh, that are working through the recovery uh, to come and meet with um, recovery navigators uh, through the recovery navigation program. Eight of these recovery navigators will help guide people through the process of rebuilding and healing. It's intended for folks to, you know, not just meet with um, people that are helping with, uh, with their recovery, but also others, you know, as a gathering place for community members um, to get together and, you know, share their stories and share their resources. Part of every recovery is a, is a gathering place, a place where people can come to learn, gather information, heal, meet with their recovery navigators to um, file their claims and, and hopefully receive funding and support that they need. Lisa Rice is another of MROC's seven board members. She says that before the opening of the new Louisville Center, they operated out of several temporary spaces. We were meeting at the old Nordstrom building at the mall for a while, the first couple of months. Um, that was the donation site uh, right after the fires. And then we have been meeting at the Ascent Church also in Louisville. The Marshall Fire Recovery Center is also meant to be a gathering place for groups and individuals to meet and talk about what they're going through. Our mental health support system will also be here um, throughout the days, so if people need that extra support, which we've found um, has been very utilized over this process the last 10 months, um, so we want to make sure that there's a space for all of those things. Grant McCurry, who also serves on MROC's board, said they've received funding from different organizations, most recently from the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. They gave us a really nice grant um, that will help fund this through 2023. We're hopeful that we can get most of the um, issues settled by then with the recovery navigators. With the magnitude of the disaster, the demand for services has been nearly overwhelming. McCurry says the new center should help alleviate that. There was such an, a volume of incoming calls that the recovery navigators were having trouble getting back to the people. We're hopeful that that is better now. The Marshall Fire Recovery Center at 357 McCaslin Boulevard in Louisville is planning a series of commemorative events through the entire month of December, leading to the first anniversary on December 30th. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen. Now for This Week in Water with H2O Radio's Jamie Sudler and Franny Halperin. Skip this chore and help the climate. That story and more on H2O Radio's weekly news report. I'm Jamie Sudler. I'm Franny Halperin, and it's This Week in Water. A large-scale, rapid shakeup in transportation, 
and how we produce food and electricity. That's what a new UN report warns is needed to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, according to the Paris Agreement. The report provides an overview of the difference between where greenhouse gas emissions are predicted to be in 2030 and where they should be to avert the worst impacts of climate change. Instead, the world is on track for a temperature rise of between 2.4 and 2.6 degrees Celsius by the end of this century. Greenhouse gas releases need to be cut by 45 percent, which seems nearly unreachable given that since last year, countries cut only 1% off their projected emissions for 2030. The grim report comes as the climate conference COP27 begins next week in Egypt. The Colorado River Basin is facing the worst drought to hit the region in 1,200 years, which has been made worse by global warming. Major cuts in river water allocations to California, Arizona, and Nevada could be coming. Federal officials announced that they will complete an environmental review, which could include reducing releases from Glen Canyon Dam and Hoover Dam that form the two largest reservoirs in the U.S., Lake Mead and Lake Powell, and also generate power for millions in the West. Earlier this year, the Bureau of Reclamation had told the seven states that rely on the river, including Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, to come up with a plan themselves to make the necessary reductions but that didn't happen. So now the feds will start the process to see how, in their words, they can protect the Colorado River system that supplies water to 40 million people and to farms that grow vegetables and fruits for much of the country. The Bureau of Reclamation will now open a comment period on three possible alternatives. One, the basin states, tribes, farmers, and cities come to an agreement to stabilize the two reservoirs. Two, the federal government unilaterally imposes restrictions. Or three, nothing is done. The agency could release a final plan in spring next year. It's fall and the din of leaf blowers permeates neighborhoods as many dutifully collect leaves from their yards. But according to new research, the climate would be better served if we let leaves lie. Pierre Gunderson at the University of Copenhagen did the math and found that not only are leaves and other garden waste a boon for biodiversity and soil health, but can also store significant amounts of carbon. He calculated the different decomposition rates for leaves, twigs, and branches, and found that if Danes kept waste in their yards, they could store around 600,000 tons of CO2 annually. According to the EPA in 2018 in the U.S., about 10.5 million tons of yard trimmings ended up in landfills where, deprived of oxygen, they generated the potent greenhouse gas methane. Conversely, if left in the garden, leaves nourish beneficial organisms from fungi and bacteria to earthworms and roly-poly bugs. Those critters help break down the organic material and release nutrients into the soil, reducing the need for fertilizers. Those decomposers then act as important food sources for animals and birds while helping to create topsoil that has a good structure and retains water. But before you stow your rake, know that when it comes to lawns, make sure to keep the layer of dead leaves thin to allow light to penetrate. You can chop them up with a lawnmower so they decompose more quickly, which will prevent weeds and improve drainage. Leaves are your all-in-one free mulch, fertilizer, and compost, saving you money and giving you permission to scratch a chore off your to-do list. And finally, speaking of scratching, 
Imagine you're a fish, say a tuna, swimming in the middle of the ocean and you get an itch. You don't have hands and there's nothing nearby like a coral or a rock to scratch against. What do you do? You find a shark. According to a team of researchers studying pelagic wildlife, creatures that live in the open ocean, when fish need to remove parasites, dead skin, and other irritants, they find an apex predator. The scientists made the discovery by accident. They were using cameras drifting at sea to analyze fish population trends, but the footage revealed the surprising behavior. At first, they observed a huge yellow fin approach a silky shark and gently rub against its tail before swimming away. But it wasn't a one-off. Before long, another yellowfin used the shark's sandpaper-like skin as a scratching post. Eventually, they observed similar interactions between several fish and shark species in the Pacific, Indian, and Atlantic Oceans. And scratchers differed in their styles. Tuna were orderly, lining up behind a shark and taking turns to brush against the tail before returning to the back of the queue. Rainbow runners, a type of yellowtail, lacked any etiquette and darted past in schools to scrape their bodies. Shark numbers are declining worldwide, and the authors are concerned about the effect it will have on the health of fish populations. They recommend increasing the number of marine protected areas to make sure the relationship continues. That's it for This Week in Water. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. We now go to our comment line and the listeners who share what they think about what they heard on KGNU. Hi, yes. I've been a member of KGNU and um, helped out with various things over the years for a total of 27 years. I am significantly frustrated with your Spanish language programming. The manager said something to the effect of it's only 15 minutes. It's not 15 minutes anymore. There are many, many Spanish radio stations, most of which are so loud and overcome KGN news signal. I doubt that this is going to be successful in getting significant sign-up, and I'm really curious how many Spanish-speaking um, members KGNU has, much less how many Hmong members. Enough is enough. Don't appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, calling here uh, Sunday night, October 30th uh, at 6.15 uh, p.m. in the middle of your BBC broadcast. It was going fine, and then it turned into massive snow to hear, or, and uh, that's the end of the program now. So just so you know, it's, um, something happened. Thank you. Hello, KGNU and all you wonderful listeners starting your day. As an American, I know that my vote is sacred. I honor those who also hold their vote as sacred. The right to vote and the act of voting are necessary for our country to even exist. KGNU informs that sacred right with its diverse programs and personalities. By broadcasting programs such as Living Dialogues, which offers analysis that's unique, KGNU gives me an opportunity to be a more informed citizen. I listened to Living Dialogues the last two Sundays at 12.30 with Pedrick Smith and Duncan Campbell. After listening, I feel more prepared for the midterm election. Those programs have given me a perspective that 
no other media outlets have. And Duncan Campbell is a national treasure. Thank you, all of you at KGNU. You are essential to our democracy. If you'd like to share a comment about something you heard on KGNU, you can call us at 303-447-9911 and leave a voicemail. We play the messages back on Tuesdays during the morning magazine. That's all the time we have for today's Morning Magazine. Thanks to Luis Licon, Steve Miller, John Kellen, Alexis Kenyon, Jack Armstrong, Jamie Sudler, and Franny Halperin for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host, Shannon Young. Stay tuned for How on Earth with Susan Moran. That's coming up just after the news headlines from the BBC.